If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 708. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Purchase one or 20 of my classes there. Keep the podcast free of charge and get great content. If you're listening to this on Thursday, I've got a new course coming out within a day. You're going to want it. It's on Jefferson Davis. If you're on my email list, you're going to get the coupon for it. Of course, next week I'll talk more about it because it will be out and you can use the coupon code. But if you're on the email list over the weekend, you'll already know about it. So get on that email list. Get the coupon by the class. It's going to be an awesome class. You're really going to want it. Also, you can support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the little super thanks button under the video. You can support the show that way. You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can buy my my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Click, I mean, if you want to do that, right? So lots of great ways to support the show. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a comment on YouTube or wherever else you can comment. That bumps it up the chart there. The algorithm gets 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 uh, used and people start seeing it more when they got more comments. So that's a great thing to do. Even if you just say something like comment for the algorithm, who cares, right? It's, it's, it's a comment. And as always, send me those show requests if there's something you want to hear. I do like to see and read what you want to hear. Now, this is a not a listener-generated episode per se, but there are people that listen to the show that I know commented on this particular article. And so I want to cover it. Um, it's a piece in the constitutionalist.org, and the title is Don't Mess With Our Constitution, and it's by David Lewis Schaefer, uh, and it's, a, it's an interesting article. And Basically, the argument is that we don't need to amend the Constitution, we don't need a Constitutional Convention, we don't need any of that stuff because that would be messing with the Constitution. Now, I've talked a lot about on this show an Article 5 convention, I've talked about federalism. I've talked about decentralization. I've talked about all these things. Thinking locally and acting locally is all of that stuff. It's you're working within your city council, your county council, your state government, doing all you can, your, your local political parties to try to change the culture and get people more interested in federalism and stop thinking about the center all the time. That's one of the real issues in America. Well, there has long been a discussion on the right about whether we should have a new, new constitutional convention. This was discussed back in the 70s and 80s, and people like uh, you know Phyllis Schlafly were uh, securely against it, right? I mean, they, they didn't think it was a good idea because of the argument of the runaway convention. And that's what uh, David Schaefer is going to say in this particular piece as well. I'll get into it. But the argument that if we have a constitutional convention, the left is going to hijack the convention. They're going to come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. And then, of course, it will be a runaway convention and um, we'll have a disaster on our hands. Now, a couple of things to say about that. The states can do whatever they want. 
I mean, this is the dirty little secret in America. The states still have all the power in this government. We think that Joe Biden or the president, Donald Trump or Barack Obama or George Bush, take your pick, has all the power. Or the people in Congress have all the power. They don't. In fact, they're powerless, really, except insofar as the states allow them to do what they think they can do, right? What they think that they can get away with. And they try all the time. I mean, look, during COVID, Trump admitted, I can't do anything. The governors have to do all this stuff. Biden comes in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure we do all this stuff. Comes into office, uh, yeah, the governors have to do all this stuff. I can't do anything. Now we're seeing an issue with immigration and the Biden administration looking at legal action against uh, red state governors who are sending migrants across borders uh, into sanctuary cities. Um, I mean... They're doing the, the Democrats are doing the exact same thing, but one is for political purposes, one's not. Well, wait a second here. If you're sending these people into red states, what do you think the objective is? Well, it's to get these people into areas where they're going to vote for Democrats. It's political. So I would, I mean, the, the funny thing about all that is, of course, you'd have to rely on a, on a court to say, well, you really don't have, there's no issue here. Unless the state should turn around and sue Joe Biden then. They should sue the, the central government for doing things that they're doing. If they're going to get sued, then countersue and let it all get hashed out in the courts. At the end of the day, a lot of these issues are state issues anyways. Uh, and I've mentioned that before. Immigration is a state issue. The states could lock it all down if they wanted to. But of course, you're going to have the general government say, you can't close the border. You can't do that. It's a United States government border. Well, it's the state border of Texas, right? It's the state border of Arizona or California. Or take your pick, whatever state it is, right? If California wants to let them in over their southern border, we'll let them. But if Texas or Arizona, New Mexico, they don't want to do it, they don't have to. That is the dirty little secret. And um, it's, it's amazing how we don't think about this anymore. But this idea of a runaway convention, one of the things that I point out, the states can do whatever they want. And when you think about the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation required unanimous consent to amend or change the Constitution, which was the Constitution of the United States at that point, the Articles of Confederation. Well, it only took nine states to basically get rid of it. So you could have uh, a convention. This is one thing that could happen. You could have a convention come in and somehow uh, you could get uh, a, a, a new Article 5 where it says, uh, you know, it only requires 26 states to put this into effect. And these, this would be a new constitution between the states that are ratifying the same. If 26 states agree to it, just a bare majority, well, then you could do it. But only between the states ratifying the same. The other states could then be in the United States government. Basically, you could have a secession take place. Now, there are very few left-wing states. Very few left-wing states. And if you actually had a convention, the states uh, actually elected delegates to go to a convention, the right-wing states, the red states, would dominate. So they could actually set up a proposal that required these states to ratify. They could write a whole new constitution. This could happen, right? And in some ways, I think it should happen. They could write a whole new constitution and say, this is the constitution between the states are ratifying the same. If California doesn't ratify it, they can operate under their own thing. If, if they don't ratify it, they can operate under their own thing. But this is the new constitution. This is it. In some ways, that would be a beautiful thing, right? If it's 26 states, 27 states, whatever it is. Now, you could also argue that anything these people came up with would require three-quarters of the states to ratify. You have to have the 
to amend the Constitution. Three quarters of the states have to do it. But you could have a new Article Five, right? I mean, you could you could come up with your whole new Constitution. It could happen, and you could say, "Here are the states. Are if we just have this many states, we have a new Constitution. This is the United States of America, and it's ours, right? It's not theirs." It's ours. We're we are the states. We created a new union right here, and if you're not in it, then you're on your own. We get all the control of the general government. We get all the control of the apparatus, the military, whatever it is. All that stuff stays with us, and you go your own way. And now you're out of it. Now, what's amazing about that, of course, in the Philadelphia Convention, this was talked about actually in the ratifying conventions more than anything else. There was a great fear that there would be disunion, and who's going to control the what? You know who's going to get the supplies? Who's going to get? It? Who's going to control the trade? Who's going to do all that stuff? Well, we know North Carolina and Rhode Island didn't ratify. They were essentially independent federal republics at that point. Independent republics, I should say, at that point, uh, those two states were. And you had the other eleven states in a union, so they operated on their own for a short period of time. They were not part of the United States government. That's exactly what would happen here. It would be beautiful. It would actually be. A real secession convention. It's just we're all meeting in convention. This is the American process. The left would go bonkers over this, but it would be beautiful to see this happen. Or they could simply propose amendments, but it would take three quarters of the states to get along with that. And that's an important point to make because the left could come in and propose all kinds of lunatic ideas, but three quarters of the states aren't going to agree to that stuff. At all. You're going to have you have more red states than blue states, so they're not going to agree to the stupid stuff the left would want. It's not going to happen. On the other hand, I think the conservatives have a lot greater chance of getting what they want through than the leftists do because uh, there are more red states. Now, does that mean that they would get everything they want? No. Does it mean they would get anything they want? Probably not. But this would be a great process. What should really happen, because I don't think any amendments would get done. Nothing would get done. What should really happen is (laughs) just say... This is our new constitution. Just what happened in Philadelphia. And if X amount of states, which are the red states, agree to it, well then, guess what? We are a new union. We are the United States of America, and you are not anymore. And you're gone. Basically, these states boot them out. They boot out New York. They boot out California. They boot out New England. They boot them out of the government. Boot out Washington and Oregon. They're booting them out of the union. And you've got the Midwest, the West, the South... Some of the South, I think Virginia, you know, but they're booting them out. We also get Washington, D.C., right? That's ours. You can't have it. That's ours. Uh, you, you can, you know, the rest of it, right? So this would be absolutely hilarious, but it's something that the states could actually do, right? The states control the, the entire general government. They control the process. So David Schaefer says, America's constitution, by far the longest continuously operative one in the world. That's actually false. That would be the constitution of the state of Massachusetts. That's the longest continuously operative constitution in the world. The state of Massachusetts. It's under attack from both sides of the political spectrum. On the right, conservative Texas Republican Congressman Jody Arrington has introduced legislation directing the U.S. archivists to tally petitions from state governments for a constitutional convention following an ever-used clause of Article 5 that authorizes Congress, upon application from two-thirds of the state legislatures, to call a convention proposing amendments to the document. Well, this is, I mean, the states can do it, right? But the states can also do an end around here. They can call their own convention. They can do it without Congress. They can just call their own convention. 
They did it in 1787. The states can do it anytime they want. You could have the states tomorrow if you had enough states. All right, look, we're going to have a convention of, of these states, and we're going to talk about the United States Constitution. And this is what we're going to do, and we're going to send it out to the states, and we're going to see if this is going to get ratified. They could do it in a heartbeat. They would have legitimacy because the states would be doing it. The states would actually call for a convention. They would elect delegates. It wouldn't be from the legislature, so the delegates would come from the states. They would meet somewhere, and they could come up with a whole new thing. Right? It's This is completely legitimate. Respected former Republican Senator Rick Santorum. Respected. I don't know. That's a pretty strong word has been a leading advocate of Arrington's proposal, claiming that a convention is needed in order to, quote, restore and reclaim this country's traditional values and limited government closer to the people and individual freedom and responsibility. While the mechanics of counting ballots from the states are complex, since petitions sometimes vary in language and some were submitted decades ago and may even have been rescinded. Well, wait a second. Uh, the general government said you cannot rescind a ratification or a petition or anything. You can't do that. You see, New Jersey tried with the 14th Amendment. They were told they can't do that. You can't rescind these things. That's what the government has said. So you can't rescind a petition, according to the government. Arrington believes the 34 petitions required to compel Congress to act may already have been received. Arrington, a deficit hawk, would seek, according to the New York Times, to confine the convention to consideration of fiscal matters to serve as a check on federal spending and taxation. Contrary to Arrington's and Santorum's hopes, however, former Democratic Senator Russ Feingold, now president of the American Constitution Society, described by the Times as a liberal judicial group, warns in a new book, The Constitution in Jeopardy, co-author with constitutional scholar Peter Prinville, that there is no way to limit a constitutional convention to, defund, to, defend a, to, to a defined agenda, excuse me, noting the danger of a, of a runaway proceeding with delegates seeking to limit federal power over issues like the environment, education, and health care. Well, that sounds like a nice endorsement, an odd endorsement of a new convention, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, some teeth of the Tenth Amendment would be great. That would be fantastic. It would take all this stuff I talked about yesterday off the table for the court. The court would have no role in this stuff anymore, and the states could do whatever they want on these things, which is the way the whole system was designed to begin with. But here are the lefties. Well, we got to worry about a runaway convention. The conservatives are the ones that have been arguing against that, uh, that same position for years. Now the lefties. Oh, the runaway convention. This will be bad. We're not just going to confine it to deficit and, and federal issues, spending issues, taxation. It's going to go into all these other things. Well, this is what the lefties would want. Regardless of how far one agrees with Feingold and Prinville's particular policy concerns, they are right to warn of the risks of a runaway convention even one that might alter fundamental aspects of our constitutional structure, including the separation of powers, presidential authority, the size, powers, and tenure of the Supreme Court, and so on. For an illustration of the sort of sweeping scope that might be feared, consider the recently proposed new Chilean constitution, fortunately rejected by voters in a referendum that would have eliminated the country's Senate. Redefine the country as a plural national state, potentially enabling 11 indigenous groups to have their own governing structures and court systems and guaranteed over 100 rights such as housing, education, internet access, and free legal advice, along with other guarantees unlikely to be affordable in practice. But it was rejected by the voters, so I mean, you can propose whatever you want. Again, the three-quarters threshold would get here, but regardless, uh, this is the, again, the basic argument against, the conservative argument against a federal convention. So he's saying, well, the lefties are right about this. We've got we've got an issue here. We can't have a runaway convention. 
Uh, we could have problems with uh, the separation of presidential authority. Yeah, I mean, we could see that limited. That would be good. Size, powers, and tenure Supreme Court. That would be amazing. Let's let's talk about that. All this stuff is already happening anyways. It's, it's just happened without any kind of convention. But you would actually have legitimacy because the people of the states would be involved in this. In 1787, when some critics of the American Constitution who objected to such alleged flaws as a lack of a Bill of Rights called for a new convention. Oh, he's saying afterwards. This, this is strange. Okay, let me, let me read this and, and go through this because he's saying after the Philadelphia Convention. The Federalists warned that such a convention be considered in a time of political passions much more fervent and divisive than those that marked American society at the time of the actual convention, which meant under secrecy, would be unlikely to produce a document superior to the one devised in Philadelphia, but would generate a far less satisfactory system. Okay, so he's saying, I was confused here for a second. So some critics of the United States Constitution that was proposed said, well, we need to have another convention because it doesn't have a Bill of Rights. Well, the argument was, if we do that again, then, and this is true, when they do that, well, we can't, the second convention wouldn't produce anything better. It might even be worse, right? So he says, see the conclusion of Federalist number 37. So that was the point, right? 1787, this would be more like 1788, not 1787. He's, he's off by a year. That's, that's the confusing part. You know, 1788 is when this really started heating up. We should just have another convention. Because, of course, the Constitution signed in September of 1787. The first state ratifies it uh, in December. And then Pennsylvania and Delaware both in December. And so it's, it's I mean, it takes a little time. But uh, the real call for a new convention didn't really heat up till 1788. That's where I was confused on his date. Federalists in several states instead guaranteed critics that once the Constitution was ratified, the first Congress would enact a Bill of Rights. Under James Madison's prudent guidance, it did so. In today's deeply polarized political environment, the Federalist warnings against calling a new convention apply with even greater force. I don't think so. I mean, I think this is why we need one. Because the real issue, of course, is, is the fact that we have a system that is not responsive to the Constitution at all. We have a, a polity and a political process is not responsible to the Constitution. It's not. This is what the, the, the left is complaining. Well, the the, the conservatives aren't following, they are following the Constitution. It's the left that isn't, but now we're having this debate of who's really following the Constitution. Well, you know how you can handle that? Tighten up the language. Pass some amendments that can actually put some teeth in the Tenth Amendment. Make it clear that even a, a, an attorney can understand it. So clear even an attorney or a judge can understand it, right? Use a Calhounian method of concurrent majority. Do things like that to try to make sure that we have a real federal republic. But dissatisfaction with our Constitution is substantially more extreme among several among some academics, such as Ryan Doderer and Samuel Mine, respectively professors of law at Harvard and Yale, who authored an August 21st Times opinion titled Liberals Need to Change the Rules. Professors Doderer and Mine hold that our real need is not to reclaim the Constitution, but instead to reclaim America from constitutionalism itself. Their fundamental complaint is that constitutions, quote, especially the broken one we have now, orient us to the past and misdirect the present into a dispute over what people agreed upon once upon a time, not on what the present and future demand from those who live now. In this respect, their premise is the same as that embodied in the title of the latest book by Erwin Cherminsky, Dean of the California Berkeley Law School, Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallow Originalism. This is what I've talked about uh, last week. 
He's asking the question why today's progressives should go should be bound by the intent embodied in a text composed 235 years ago. But see, the thing is, if we had real federalism, this wouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't be an issue at all. That's the dirty little secret. Professors Darter and mine elaborate their compl or complaint by lamenting how the Constitution enables reactionaries to impede radical uh, redistributive change while using concepts like due process and equal protection to abolish abortion rights and impede affirmative action. In a new book, they cite two other law professors urge progressives to stop treating constitutional law as an autonomous domain, instead calling on Congress and other non-judicial actors to claim authority to interpret the Constitution for themselves. Of course, as Abraham Lincoln stressed in his response to the Dred Scott decision, such non-judicial actors already do possess and ought to exercise such authority by challenging manifestly unconstitutional decisions and working through the political process to get them overturned. That is just what opponents of Roe v. Wade, which established a right to abortion that was ungrounded in the Constitution's text, succeeded in doing and finally bringing about its reversal in the court's recent Dobbs decision. Thus did governments regain their constitutional authority to set limits to abortions in accordance with their citizens' wishes. Uh, what's weird about that part of this is he doesn't have, he has a parentheses and then it doesn't end the parentheses anywhere. So I don't know, that's an aside that has a parentheses that doesn't have an end of a parentheses. It's weird. But regardless, um, yeah, I mean, look, the, 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 the Dobbs decision, as I talked about yesterday, was simply returning the issue back to the states and the people of the states to deal with the issue themselves. This is real federalism. We, but we need some teeth in that. The Supreme Court has gone too far in these things, typically. The piece continues, but that's not the sort of exercise of popular authority that the authors have in mind. Instead, they hold that Americans should learn the art of self-government through ordinary statute without being limited by a constitution at all. And this is something I've already covered their piece, so he's getting into that here. Why the Ashen claims about the best reading of some centuries-old text substitute for direct arguments about what fairness or justice demands. Why not instead have liberal legislators make a case for abortion and labor rights on their own merits without bothering with the Constitution? And then he says, actually, that's just what the court authorized advocates and opponents of broad abortion rights to do in Dobbs. Nor, except in the most extreme cases, has the court ever since the Wagner Act significantly labeled limited labor, that is, labor union rights. Again, these are all state issues. <laughs> these are state issues. That's the real dirty secret of all this. The states can do all these things. As I mentioned, the states can do just what they want. One thing I find annoying about this piece is all the parenthetical asides. Don't put it as a parenthetical. If you want to see a piece that should uh, strike you as being poorly written, and this is what academics do, this piece is one of them. All the parenthetical asides are annoying. Just incorporate the piece somehow. The deepest flaw in constitutionalism, the professors assert, is that it demands extraordinary consensus for meaningful progress, conditioning democracy in which majority rule must always must always must matter most on surviving vetoes from minorities. Minority rights and these legal scholars' views should never be allowed to trump simple majoritarianism. And another parenthetical aside, nor should majority rule be constrained by such outdated notions as due process and the equal protection of the laws. Now, what's funny about that is, of course, the right now is complaining that the left is always vetoing majoritarianism through their use of minority rights. Right? But the whole point of a constitution is to protect minority rights. Here the left is saying we need majoritarianism. Screw the minorities. 
But for years, all they've complained about is minority, minority rights. Now that they think they have the majority, this is why it's always about power. I mentioned it yesterday. It's always about power. Now that they think they have a simple, bare majority through numerical majoritarianism, they want to do whatever they want. And so any kind of opposition to that, any kind of restriction on that through a concurrent majority or some type of minority veto has to be overridden. We can't have any of that at all. The Senate is a block. The Supreme Court is a block. The Electoral College is a block. All these things are a block to real majoritarianism because they think they have the majority, and they're probably right. But the fact is, the written Constitution is there to protect minorities, and that's what it should be there for. It should always be for that, there for that. I, I've said this on the show before. I remember years ago, I was in a debate with a guy I was uh, working, and he was a co work, fellow worker, and um, I brought this up, and he said, oh yeah, you know, I'm all for minority rights. I said, good, right? Then in this case, you should be all for it in the issue we were talking about. No, 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 that, that, that's not right. Why not? The minority needs to be re respected and represented. I'm all for it. The minority should have the ability to protect itself, whatever kind of minority you're talking about. If the bill would be abusive to a minority, then it shouldn't happen. It could be taxpayers, which are now the minority. <laughs> it could be, uh, I mean, it could be anything. It could be a minority group based on anything. Religion, race, anything. Economic status. They should have the ability to protect themselves at the center. Now, the states are a whole other issue. Because the states are not constrained by the same things the general government is. But you can apply this if you want to take it out just in the role of minorities, even in a state government. But regardless, the federal government is a whole other monster. Given the failure thus far to get the Constitution interpreted is in an egalitarian way, Professors Doder and Moyne argue that the first step is to make the Constitution more amendable by packing the Union with new states, enabling Americans to use the formal amendment process to break the deadlock that the Constitution imposes on the country through the Electoral College and the Senate which, because they are not elected on a purely majoritarian basis, cause substantial majorities to be foiled on issue after issue. Another parenthetical aside, the professors offer no evidence that majorities currently favor such policies dear to them as unlimited abortion rights or race and gender-based quotas. But that process must be succeeded by a second stage, enabling Americans to do politics through ordinary statute, without regard to whether any proposed law conforms to some higher law, that is, the Constitution. But you see, what they're doing here is flipping the higher law on its head, uh, legis uh, legislating by statute or, or organizing by statute is the higher law because you're saying the people, the majority, is the higher law than the Constitution. That is actually the higher law doctrine. I don't care what the Constitution says. There's a higher law than that, and that's the people. That's the will of the people. That's the higher law than the Constitution. That's essentially what they're doing there. And It's just that uh, the author of this piece doesn't seem to get that. An alternative, more aggressive route to liberal reform than the, that the professors outlined is for Congress to simply pass a Congress Act, reorganizing the legislature without regard to the constitutional text, another parenthetical aside, to make it more fairly representative, possibly reducing the Senate to a mere council of revision like the Canadian Senate without the power to obstruct laws. All this would facilitate the constant reinvention of our society that progressives demand. So I've already talked about that piece. Of course, this piece addresses it as well. And I look, I agree that the piece is uh, it's stupid. Uh, and I already talked about why it was stupid on this show. But 
Um, what, what he says here next is important. Representative Arrington and Senator Santorum, you've been forewarned. Once you initiate an open-ended constitutional convention, you will have no control over its domain or its outcome. Well, sure you will. All right, The states still have to ratify any amendments. Now, unless you come up with a way, as I've said, I've said at the beginning of this podcast, where you could boot these people out, that would be great. You get rid of California and New York and New England. You just get rid of them. You kick them out of the union. We have This is the United States. You're no longer part of it because you're not really in line with what the United States is. That would be great. That would be fantastic. There are plenty of self-described progressives in both the political and academic realms who would love to wreak havoc with our nation's governing document, undermining the promotion of the government by what the Federalist Papers calls the deliberate sense of the majority, rather than passing whims, providing security for the rights of minorities of all sorts, and undermining the capacity of ordinary citizens to plan their lives in an orderly way, never knowing how the rules will be reinvented next. Uh, well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we do need to protect minorities. That's the whole point of a written constitution. Um, but we've already done all this stuff. It's just we're doing it without... I mean, the left is already doing these things. They try it all the time. It's why they pass legislation and just let the court sort it out. They don't care about the Constitution anymore. It's what they do. It is lamentable that professors at our nation's most renowned law schools show so little acquaintance with the records of the Constitutional Convention or the Federalist Papers that might explain to them the dangers of government by unstable majorities, imagining that free government can maintain the loyalty of its citizens without bothering to tailor its policies to attain a reasonable consensus among the people as a whole, so that all individuals, whether whatever policies they favor, can feel that their, their fundamental rights are secure. Well, if we just read the Federalist Papers and the, con- the notes of the Constitutional Convention, we are on the right track. Of course, that's not true. Uh, this is why I have the Originals Papers class at McLean Academy. Just because you can read the Federalist Papers and think, I mean, look, they're fine. And I cover them in that class. But I cover a lot of other people, too, who said a lot of things that were actually better than what they said in the Federalist Papers. But it's also regrettable that leading conservative politicians show so little appreciation of the need for constitutional continuity, as explained by Madison in Federalist No. 49. The remedy for the short-sighted fiscal policies they decry must be found in the existing political process as structured by the Constitution. Yeah, that's going to work so well. That's worked really well, hasn't it? Uh, to, to have, you know, we're just going to follow what we're doing. I mean, that's, that's the very definition of insanity. That's exactly what, what this piece is arguing. Just be insane. Just keep doing what we're doing and hope you get better results. This is what Schaefer really wants. Just keep doing what we're doing and hopefully we'll get better results eventually. So I found the piece interesting because it let me talk about a constitutional convention. But the beauty of it all... Now, you could actually have a system where the the left would see the left would never control it. This is the thing. The conservatives would control it ostensibly. And they would be the ones to boot the left out, which would be the funniest part. The left would never have the power to do it. Well, we could have a situation where California and New York, they, uh, they, they, they have a situation where they boot this, they, they become the United States. And we're not, wouldn't that be beautiful, right? They could have it. They could have it. All of this could be worked out. It would actually lead in some ways, I think, to a better federal system or two different governments, or three or four or five different governments, whatever it would be in North America, which would be beautiful for a lot of reasons. But um, 
if the union's not working, then we should rediscuss the union. What does the union actually mean? What are these? What does it mean? What is the nature and benefit? What are the benefits and burdens of the union? What are the benefits that people have in it right now? Or do they outweigh the 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 negatives? Do the burdens are the burdens equitable? I mean, how are these things working for us? So, this is something I think it's a, it's a it's a discussion to have, and we should be having. But when you have people like Schaefer saying, "No, no, we can't have this stuff. We can't have these discussions." We should be having these discussions. It's the same thing that was happening in 1787. The founding generation were on this. I mean, they understood that you had to have these kind of discussions. If the system's not working, then think about something else. We just have this love affair with this United States Constitution that, frankly, hasn't worked for a long time. Or it's been abused and hasn't worked because of that for a long time. But, all right. Hope you enjoyed this week of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next week. See you on Monday.